entering the Freedom Hut. There was a super boring Democrat debate last night. I'll tell you what you need to know from it, though. Also, more testimony from bureaucrats who are way too self-important. Impeachment, they say, is what this is all about. And uh, Ann Coulter was at Berkeley and Libs freaked out. That and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. It's a bombshell. Today is a turning point. Today was historically bad for President Trump. Today was a turning point. A turning point. We're at a turning point here. The beginning of the end for the Trump presidency. We have another bombshell. Mike Pence might have to assume the office of the presidency. Rumblings of the word impeachment. Breaking news. Another bombshell out of the White House. I believe this is the beginning of the end. I do too. It's really the beginning of the end. He may be feeling the walls closing in on him. All the walls closing in on him. The walls closing in on him. Breaking news, a new bombshell. One astrologer says this means the beginning of the end for President Donald Trump. Trump will resign. Trump is going to resign. Is this the tipping point? I know we've said it over and over. You think this is a tipping point? And over and over. This is a tipping point. And over and over. Breaking news, President Trump off the rails. It was the beginning of the end today. The beginning of the end. Breaking news tonight, new bombshell. This is the beginning, not the end. The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in. The walls closing in. The walls closing in. Breaking overnight. Bombshell. This is a very dramatic day, and I think it might be near a tipping point. Do you think this is a tipping point? December 1st, 2017, you can mark it down. This is the day that everything changed. The beginning of the end? Beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. The beginning of the end. We begin tonight with a bombshell. Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, it it kind of gave it away at the end. I was going to play that and then say, oh my gosh, I guess the testimony yesterday was... Really bad on Capitol Hill. Sondland, who's kind of all over the place, doesn't really remember certain stuff, doesn't really remember other stuff. Sondland is the final nail in the coffin of the Trump presidency. But it turns out all of that, those are all different media sources, media voices. The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in. This time he has gone too far. That was all from 2017. It's going to be 2020 soon, folks. A normal person would see this. A normal person would view what has happened over the last few years and think, wow, Democrats are emotionally and psychologically broken by this president. They can't handle the prospect of four more years of this president. And so they will go along with whatever the leaders of the Democrat Party and the media, their leaders really, go along with whatever they say that has any any possibility even any prospect of getting rid of Trump somehow either through a an impeachment proceeding or through the ballot box assuming that impeachment makes Trump a far less palatable candidate to those independents and centrists and undecideds in about half a dozen states that will be the determining factor in who gets to be the president of the United States next Uh, The presidency has become far too powerful in this country. We have way too much of a fixation on it. Uh, This has become in our constant media environment where everyone carries around little uh, screens of commentary and information and propaganda all the time. And we're like a bunch of lab rats engaged in the constant interplay on social media and arguing with people and fighting with people. 
we care way too much as a as a country now about the presidency. Um, but part of that is the presidency has become far too powerful, and uh, that's maybe a conversation we can have another another day. Um, but and that's a general thing. That's not any. That's not this president. That's the presidency overall. Uh, I I have to tell you, I watched the Democrat debate last night, and it was it was stunning to me because the the big things, and we'll get into some of the policy specifics. And also, I know Fiona Hill is testified this morning on Capitol Hill and uh, some other some other guy who's another another State Department guy. It's like the interagency consensus was very important for de uh, de corruption in eastern Ukraine. I swear it's a good thing. These bureaucrats who work at the State Department aren't really self-important and think that their work is changing the world for the better when it's not, because that would be kind of awkward. Um, I Oh, and Fiona Hill, I like how she starts off this morning by saying uh, she has a very particular kind of British accent, too. I'd have to listen to it to more to, some more to be able to uh, try to mimic it for you here. But she she starts off by saying that she just wants to answer questions and understands that, you know, that's what's most important. And then she launches into, you know, my family hails from like a part of England where George Washington was born. <laughs> I'm like, oh, of course. Every bureaucrat now gets their moment, gets their 15 minutes of congressionally mandated fame. Fantastic. Isn't this just, isn't this just wonderful? Um, but I figured we would start today with the uh, Democrat debates and then perhaps make our way into um, this Russia stuff, which... Can you imagine, my friends? We're gonna. This is gonna be the fixation of Congress and for and the news media for at least another couple of months, maybe even another three or four months. We're gonna be talking about this. People, did did you hear the ambassador say to the other ambassador who heard from the ambassador who believed that someone told Trump that there was another ambassador who should do a thing that he didn't do? Did you hear that thing from that person who heard bup, 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 all the way down the line? Um, yeah, I guess. I don't, I mean, at some point. Libs are crazy, though, folks. I keep saying it. I, I don't mean, I, I don't mean that, like, uh, you know, as some guys, when they break up with somebody, and this is a classic thing, at least I can just speak to the, the New York life here. They break up with their girlfriend. Most of my male friends are like, oh, man, she was crazy. They don't mean she's actually crazy. They just, that's like a throwaway. I don't mean it that way. I mean that the Democrats have actually something has gone wrong. There's there's a problem. They have been brainwashed. They have been propagandized so thoroughly that the normal processes that the rest of us can engage in to look at an issue, it it no longer counts. It no longer works. They always accuse us of, oh, everything Trump does is perfect and wonderful. No, it's not reality. I I never say that. It's a lot of stuff that Trump says or tweets or does. And I'm like, oh, gosh, here we go. But overall, I think he's great. <laughs> so overall, I'm like, yeah, Trump, high five, good stuff. Um, meanwhile, the uh, libs run around saying that the world is going to end in in 12 years. Um, I think it was actually, according to Bernie, it was going to be eight years last night. And so that's a, I think that's a perfect time for us to get into the debate uh, from last night. Uh, Let's start with Bernie. You know, everybody's got a Bernie Sanders impression. I think my Bernie Sanders impression is better than a lot of the other Bernie impressions out there. But 
I've realized it's not really a very hard one to do. So now one's like, Bernie Sanders is running around. He does the sort of one eye a little bigger than the other eye. He, he waves his hand in front of his face and he yells about, we need a political revolution in this country. You know, the whole thing. Um, also, apparently, we're all uh, unless we vote for Bernie, we're all going to die. I, I, this is what he's this is what he's saying, folks. Play 22. Now, I disagree with the thrust of the original question. Because your question has said, what are we going to do in decades? We don't have decades. But the scientists are telling us that we don't get our act together within the next eight or nine years. We're talking about cities all over the world, major cities going underwater. We're talking about increased drought, talking about increased extreme weather disturbances. The United Nations is telling us that in the years to come, there are going to be hundreds of millions of climate refugees causing national security issues all over the world. Yeah, cities are going to be underwater. This was the Democrat presidential primary debate last night on MSNB crazy. And uh, it was just stunning hearing these people talk about this stuff. And they think that they're they think that this is smart. They think that this is what we should be told, that that the American people need to hear this. Uh, I've also reached a point where the same way that this like the CNN audience and the MSNBC audience, they're virtually indistinguishable. I mean, there's a little more honesty among the MSNBC audience that they're watching a Democrat, the Democrat media network. There are still people who watch CNN who think that they're sophisticated news watchers because that's that's real journalism and it's neutral and nonpartisan. Those people are not very smart, but there are there are people I meet people. I come across people that that think that. But the same way that I believe that most of the media, uh, most of the audience, rather, of those channels and other channels like them is is in on the joke at this point or, or is in on the scam, I should say. They, they understand that this is all about taking down President Trump. They they realize that this is dirty tactics to get rid of someone that they don't like. Uh, That is true. I also think that with climate change, increasingly there there's an understanding that nobody really believes this stuff. It's just like the equivalent for the left of, you know, the cheer before the big game, you know, you know, two, four, six, eight. Who do we climate change hate? I mean, it's like it's just it's it's a mantra. It's uh, something mindlessly repeated by all these different leftists that it, it signals to each other that they're on the same team. It's like the verbal you know, secret handshake of leftism now is climate change. I mean, none of them really I, I, I don't think. Well, I shouldn't say none of them. Most of them don't really believe the actual words that they are saying. Because they would act quite differently if they did. I mean, if they really thought that we had eight or nine years before cities are going to be underwater. I mean, we can go back and watch An Inconvenient Truth from, what was it, 2005? Look at the graphics. Look at the proje- uh, predictions, projections. None of it was correct. So we sit here and we're told, oh, but no, this, this time is different. This time they'll get it right. Some... Broad, you know, high level thoughts on the Democrat debate last night, which I mean, I did watch it so you don't have to. It it was unless you are a political unless you are a political junkie, it's just not it just wasn't worth your time. I mean, honest with you, I mean, I'll the the few minutes we'll spend on it here today, hopefully will give you everything that you would ever need to know or want to know about the Democrat debate. It was funny to me 
to see MSNBC go through such in from what I could tell, make it so clear that they had really uh, no interest in asking anybody tough questions. You know, there's nothing about Hunter Biden, Burisma stuff for for Joe Biden. And Hunter Biden's got a whole other problem on his hands. If you saw the news yesterday uh, situation that he has to handle them. Uh, but, you know, Hunter Biden, there was nothing about uh, nothing tough for Mayor Pete. MSNBC's role, from what I could tell from the, these organizers, was to show their audience how wonderful all these candidates are and to let the audience make their own determinations. They're not trying to pick favorites among those on the stage, particularly. They just want everyone to be sure that there's agreement that Trump is horrible and Trump is going to destroy the country and is destroying the country and, and all the rest of it. Um, there is a, oh, wait, speaking of, I didn't even, I didn't even see this. I'm saying the libs are crazy. Don Lemon thinks that we are crazy. <laughs> Don Lemon, who wants you to know, he said it this week, he is not some partisan liberal Democrat. No, no, of course. <laughs> Don Lemon. Oh, my God, CNN, you're so funny, man. You guys, oh, yeah, you're journalists. You're journalists. You have people like Bro Cuomo and Don Lemon running around. But sure, you're all about uh, just the facts. Play uh, play 18, please. At this point, if you're continuing to say that there was no, as they say, quid pro quo or the president didn't ask or whatever, whether or not it's impeachable, that is, again, not up for me to decide, not up for you to decide. That's up for the Senate to decide and the American people. But to deny that the president did not do something wrong at this point, it is um, it's, political. It's and, and me, no, it I was going to say it's mental. It, it is mental. If you can look at all the mountain of evidence and say, oh, nothing's wrong. I still, uh, the, you know, the president didn't do anything wrong. He's just rooting out corruption. You got a problem. I put this to you, uh, my my wonderful audience, as as jury of this issue. Uh, who do you trust? Am, am I crazy or is Don Lemon crazy? I think I think that should be a pretty easy one. The vice president, he is uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I I, I, I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people, and it's one the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. Now, he's saying the war on drugs is a war. On... Now, first of all, I will I will give credit that that was Cory Booker's best moment and funniest line of the night. It was funny. It was legitimately a funny, a well-delivered line. But, you know, Cory Booker, you do see and I know a lot of you are like, oh, boo, buck. But we got to we got to parse a little bit. We got to look at what Democrats, what skills some of them have, what uh, what abilities they bring to the table versus each other. And this is what we're watching a primary play out. Right. It's kind of fun. We get to sit back and eat the popcorn. And what was your producer, Mark? What was your. Your candy of choice in the movie theater growing up. Oh, in the movie theater. Movie theater. Uh, yeah. I really love cookie dough bites. I didn't even know those were a thing. Yeah, they're like little pieces of cookie dough covered in chocolate. Well, that sounds absolutely It's phenomenal. amazing. I, I used to sit and I only ever ate them in movie theaters. I've never even seen them except in movie theaters. Do you remember snow caps? Yes. Chocolate with like little white sprinkles on yeah, it. Yeah, those are like non pareils that you'll get in a candy store. Yeah, I just never but I used to eat snow caps and the other thing, I would sit there and eat 
a box of Sour Patch Kids mm-hmm. like it was a stick of celery. It's probably. I'm more of a chocolate kind of guy. I would do M and M's also. Yeah, I mean, I'm a chocolate. Oh. I'm still a chocolate guy. This I have a chocolate stash. I keep trying to put it higher so it's harder for me to get in my like. You yeah, know, but if you cupboard. know where the stash is, then it's exactly. Pointless. I am. I am tall enough, and I have enough ingenuity. Exactly. Even when I make the stash a little harder to get to, I'm like, hmm, I think I need some salted caramel. You have to like go put it at your parents' house. Yeah. Uh, well, then they'll eat it because my parents like chocolate mm. too. But anyway, um, sit back, eat the popcorn, watch the Democrats. Yeah, because I was never a popcorn guy in the movie theaters. I like it at home. I don't like movie theater popcorn that much. Anyway, you sit back and watch the Democrats uh, have all these fights with each other. Cory Booker occasionally has a moment where you go, oh, okay, I can see why they have this belief that maybe he's really a national-level politician why the media likes him. I think he had that last night. But now I get to say that even when you you have a moment with a Democrat like that where he comes forward and has – a good line or has a has a moment you look at the policies and things that they're saying i mean he says that the war on drugs the war on black and brown people what is the single biggest component of the war on drugs right now by far by far opioids getting about 65 to 70,000 people a year dying from opioids a, a solid, large majority of those people are actually white. A lot of them are white and either uh, suburban or rural Americans. But we're told the war on drugs. Is, no, I mean, if we really want to talk the war on drugs, we've got to talk about our southern border, Mexican cartels, making pills to look like pharmaceutical pills that are actually just straight up fentanyl that are killing people. And so they say things are just not true. And I mean, last night I sit there, I go, why... What's the point of having a debate where they're saying things that's just it's just not rooted in the facts? Oh, and just continuing for a moment here with uh, Cory Booker and what he said about China, too. He said that Trump isn't tough enough on China, that he that Trump isn't being tough on China because there's this line, you know, Democrats, they have these places where their narrative contradicts other parts of the narrative and they don't really understand or, or care to deal with that they just say well you know i'll hold these contradictory positions and on china we are told that because trump likes dictators they always say this he likes strong men he likes putin he likes um and all the rest of it Uh, on china they say he's not strong enough and i sit here and point out that trump has confronted china in a way that his presidential predecessor stretching back 30 years have been just flatly unwilling to do. Um, And he has started a trade war with China. And China's economy is the shakiest it has been in 30 years, largely as a result. And also you have protesters in Hong Kong who are posing a real challenge to the entire system in Beijing of communist central rule. Okay, and Trump is not strong enough on China. It's just Trump isn't strong enough on China. That's that's a stupid thing to say. It's just fantasy land stuff. It doesn't compared to what? Compared to whom? Don't even get me. We're gonna get into Obama Ukraine stuff later, but people seem to forget. People seem to forget that it was while Obama was president that Ukraine was invaded by Russia, that Crimea was taken from Ukraine, that the Russians or Russian Missiles in the hands of Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine shot flight MH17 out of the sky, killing over 200 
civilians on a Malaysian Airlines plane. That all happened while Obama was president. Obama wouldn't give javelin missiles despite all of that happening, wouldn't give lethal aid to Ukraine despite the desperate need for it. And Trump is Putin's puppet? Trump isn't strong enough on Ukraine? Does anyone want to actually challenge these imbeciles running around on the stage last night and the different moderators and all the Democrat talking heads with with reality or no? Never, never actually do that. Okay, I'm glad that I'm glad that we've made our way through through that one. Um, What else was of of note uh, last night? Um, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris tries. She really tries. She wants us to think that she's just a moment away from breaking through and breaking out of this pack of Democrats and becoming a frontrunner candidate. And let me just play for you when she said, when she's asked why she should be president. Here's what she said. Play 25. We're in a fight. Um, This is a fight for our rule of law, for our democracy, and for our system of justice. And it's a fight we need to win. And to fight this fight, I believe we have to have the ability to not only have a nominee who can go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump, and I have taken on Jeff Session, I have taken on Bill Barr, I have taken on Brett Kavanaugh. I know I have the ability to do that. Sessions got confirmed, Barr got confirmed, Kavanaugh got confirmed. What does she mean she's taken them on? She's asked them some petty partisan questions when she was in the what Senate Judiciary Committee. Come on. I've taken them on. But you just hear in her answer, she's just she's just flatly uninspiring. I mean, she's just not somebody that even Democrats can get excited about. I and mean, the media really wants to, really wants to get excited about her as a candidate, but there's uh there's just not it's not gonna happen. There's not enough. Oh, there. And she also loves to say this thing. She comes back to it. You know, justice is on the ballot. And it's like she reminds me of a person when she says that because she says it in every debate like 20 times. And she reminds me of that friend you have who has a joke that he keeps telling and you've been around him telling it a few times. And it's never funny. Like the joke always falls flat and people go, you know, womp, womp. but they're like, no, no, I'm going to tell the joke again this time. And everyone's really going to like it. no. Justice is on the ballot is a is a it's it's a cheesy, it's a ridiculous little canned phrase. But she keeps repeating it because I'm sure some consultants have told her it brings up your background as a as a prosecutor. So she's she should just do everybody a favor, really. I think and and bow out of this thing sooner sooner than uh, than later. Um, but the one interesting thing last night with. Buddha judge, and I guess we, we don't have the uh, Tulsi, Tulsi and Buddha judge going after each other on stage clip. Maybe we'll pull that for later. Uh, it was just it was an entertaining exchange where they were talking about foreign policy and what they would do respectively on foreign policy. Uh, black the black community and support in the black community for different Democrat candidates. Uh, here is Joe Biden is by far still the favorite candidate on the Democrat stage there of all those Democrats running this primary he is the favorite of black uh, primary voters and here is what was sent play 23 
I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm part of that, that Obama coalition. I come out of the black community in terms of my support. If you notice, I have more people supporting me in the black community than announced for me because they know me. They know who I am. Three former chairs of the Black Caucus. The only African-American woman that ever been elected to the United States Senate. A whole range of people. No, my point no, is... The other one is true. here. <laughs> I said the first... So my point is, my point is, one of the reasons I was picked to be vice president was because of my relationship, long-standing relationship with the black community. I was part of that coalition. I mean, really? He's got. First of all, he said I came out of the black community in terms of support. I mean, tried try to pull a save there. Everyone's like, what? Yes, we know. You were Barack Obama's vice president. You were his vice president because Obama had zero foreign policy knowledge or experience. And you've been, Biden had been in the game a long time. They figured they'd put this guy. And also, nobody was worried about Biden, you know, overshadowing or uh, or out outshining uh, the the star power of, of Barack Obama. So, but I just think it's funny. Biden, the... Senator from Delaware, which does is not known for having a particularly large minority community as a state, uh, but he's he's all. I mean, but I understand from the from the community uh, from the perspective of the black community, uh, you know, if you want certain policies, you go with the guy you think is going to win. And Democrat apparatus hasn't come up with a better front runner yet than Biden, so it's kind of like I guess this is going to be our guy because if we want things that Democrats want. And this is where Mayor Pete has a big problem. Mayor Pete has, from what I understand, almost uh, statistically, I mean, I'm sure there are you know, African-American primary voters who, who are voting for him. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing. I, I don't know what the numbers are. Uh, but statistically has like a zero level support. And especially in some states like uh, you know, um, North Carolina, uh you look at some of the earlier primary states for Democrats and African-American support is very, very important to anybody who really wants to be the nominee. I, I mean, I also think that this was a big problem for Bernie Sanders when he was running against Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders, another senator from one of the, uh, by population, one of the whitest states, it might even be, I think Vermont might even be the, it's, it's certainly in the top like three or four. I think it might be the whitest state in the country. Um, so there was the issue of where was the minority support for Bernie Sanders, and it was minorities. Uh, and and it is an inter- interesting. There is a, a feeling of, or, or there's there's something uh, a bit like deja vu here because Hillary Clinton had support from the minority community because of who her, of who her husband was, um, and now uh, we have Joe Biden getting support from the minority community uh, because he was Barack Obama's. Vice president, basically. So that was on display last night. There's not really a whole lot beyond that to take from the debate that was that was really uh, worthwhile. I have to tell you, I mean, as I was watching it, they said it's all the same stuff. I mean, Elizabeth Warren was defending her wealth tax. You know, we're just going to take more money from the billionaires. You know, they can afford to pay more. 
They're just, the government works for the rich and it doesn't work for the common people. Elizabeth Warren's only worth like 12 million, so she knows what it's like to be in the struggle. Uh, nobody last night had a standout performance. Nobody, I mean, the, the debate, debates are always forgotten relatively quickly. And, and there is a lot of, of evidence, both statistical and anecdotal, that these debates don't really move the needle politically, regardless of, of what happens. Um, but this one was forgotten right away. I mean, th- this one was like nobody nobody cared. Nobody really wanted to be there. MSNBC wasn't even really interested. Oh, here we go. Here, here's an, Politico writes, why Pete Buttigieg, it's funny, I didn't even see this till now, but I said they wouldn't ask any hard questions. Why Pete Buttigieg got a pass in the debate the mayor took a few small hits, but for the most part, rivals want to see if his rise in Iowa is real before trying to drag him down. Oh, no, no. Well, that's a little bit of a different spin than what I was thinking. Uh, I feel like the moderators gave Mayor Pete a um, gave Pete a, a pass on all this. Didn't, didn't ask him any, any tough questions at all. I mean, being mayor of South Bend, Indiana, I mean, no, no offense to any South Bend residents. I mean, I know we got... Whoa, whoa, Fort Wayne in the house, one of our wonderful affiliates in in Indiana. But Mayor Pete uh, running South Bend is not exactly a stepping stone, you would think, to being the president of the United States. But, yeah, he didn't really get much in the way of of, uh, harsh, harsh attacks from the moderators. Because, I mean, look, Rachel Maddow doesn't want to be seen as attacking Democrats just at the the end of the day or any of the other Andrea Mitchell. By the way, what's Andrea Mitchell? What's going on there? I just what is what is like uh, why why I mean just been around just been in the game a really long time I guess I I just kind of wonder I you know Maddow has a she has a a shtick you know she has a thing and she does present well and she's 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 quick she's clever I I don't you know I'm not gonna lie to you and pretend like these things aren't true when they are uh, I mean her show is ridiculous it's always you know and then this guy in 1975 in Russia talked this other guy oh no wait in 1982 a Ukrainian oligarch had a sandwich next to, I mean, it's, it's like, and at the end it's, and Russia collusion. You're like, no, no, it's not, it's not Russia collusion, but nonetheless, here, here we are. Um, I, I just don't, some, I didn't even know who some of those other, Demo- I didn't even know who some of the other MSN, I was going to say Democrat moderators, MSNBC moderators of the Democrat debate, which is the same thing as Democrat moderators. Um, but there, there was, I don't think anything last night was a, was a bust, a wash, boring, nothing. That was, I'm sitting there on the bed. I was like, oh, gosh. So I feel like if nothing else, I can provide you, team, the service of um, making sure that you don't feel the need to go back and watch this or read the transcript of this or anything else. It's just, it was just, uh, I'm not going to say the thing. I'm not, I am not going to call it a nothing burger because we, we don't use that because that's a phrase we should, I think, use a lot less in the English language. But uh, it was the whole thing. Demo- I mean, they usually, the usual stuff. I and mean, they referred to, I'm trying to think what sticks out. I mean, they referred to uh, abortion as a human right. Not a human right for the tiny human in the womb, but they refer- referred to, what else? Um, there were a lot of things that they said that I was a bit uh, taken aback by, but not anything out of the ordinary. I mean, it's the usual stuff. Uh, they did ask if, I think if Biden got the question, if he would consider prosecuting Trump and he didn't say no. And that's 
That's something that I, I, the same way that I've known all along that Democrats were going to impeach the president, and I've been saying it here on the show, so you know that I've been saying it all along. I, I do believe that it is not out of the question that Democrats would try to bring criminal charges at, at, against Trump if they had the White House. I think they would bring criminal charges after he left office. They don't care what it would do to the country. And even if it was flimsy, if the charges were ridiculous and didn't go very far, just the bringing of charges, that's how anti-Trump, how psychotically opposed to this guy they've become. That's really where it is now. I mean, whatever they have to do to placate a left-wing base, and we'll talk more about it. I mean, you could see the left-wing base on display uh, last night at the Ann Coulter speech. I wasn't there, obviously, but I saw video of it, Ann Coulter speech in Berkeley. And there was also an event at, uh, I believe, Chico State College or something. I didn't. I don't know this place, uh, but there was a guy doing a a walk away. Mark, do you know this walk away thing? I've heard of this a little bit. I guess it's like don't be a Democrat anymore. Anyway, uh, there was an event there too, and videos circulating now. We might. I don't know if we have some of it or not to play for you. We'll try to find some. But basically, these left wing college kids are just act like total barbarians. I mean, they're just out of their minds cursing and screaming and threatening and just, you know, horrific to strangers, people that don't know. I mean, if if you ever feel the need, you know, if anyone ever feels the need to spit on or or threaten a total stranger because they don't like their political, and this is what psychopaths do. Like, this is for crazy people. A lot of that on college campuses, though. Just in the same way, I think that we have to, when you guys were talking about how we have to be more moderate or move to the center, that's how we're going to win. Uh, next year. See, to me, I think moving to the center, I am the center. I, I am the mainstream now of the Democratic Party. The majority of Americans agree with me and Bernie on all the issues, whether it's whether it's uh, health care for all, whether it's climate change, um, minimum wage, mass incarceration, but down the whole list, the, the, the American people have moved left. Unfortunately, there's some truth to what Michael Moore there is saying, I mean, he's exaggerating and, he, and he's wrong, but there's a, there's some grains of truth to what he says in that the Democratic Party has moved far to the left. No question about it. And look at the candidates that are up there now. What what would be even more left wing? What policies could move the Democratic Party even further left than what they're already proposing? Radical escalation of taxation, government takeover of the entirety of the health care system, free college for everybody, free child care for everybody, uh, mass redistribution of wealth through the means of climate change reparations paid to the developing world, climate change legislation that would give them or climate change executive orders, uh, control over everything in your life. How much further left could the Democratic Party really go before they really should start just wearing Che Guevara T-shirts all the time? I'm just wondering. I guess they already wear those T-shirts, but you know what I mean. All right, so we have more hearings on Capitol Hill about what bureaucrat A thought he heard from bureaucrat C, who then talked to bureaucrat D, and you know this is just the world's most overhyped game of telephone, and we sit here and and ultimately remember my, my consistent has been positioned all along. The president didn't do it. If, if the president said, hey, it'd be great if you can get some answers about corruption and Burisma and the Bidens. Uh, you know, please check that out for us. That'd be awesome. Thanks. I have no problem with that. 
<laughs> so I sit here as the person who says, I don't even know what the Democrats think they're proving here. And they don't know either. That's why they keep changing. Oh, it's bribery. No, it's a quid pro quo, which is just a Latin phrase. It's not actually a quid pro quo. They like to use it because it is generally in corruption statutes. The quid pro quo is the mechanism used to designate whether something is just the perceived favor or the perception of access. But they've also brought cases in the absence of a quid pro quo in the past against Republicans, usually, of course. Uh, But it's pretty astonishing that this is where we are right now. And I mean, I, I, I do this for a living and I love my job and I love getting to talk to you, all of you across the country every day. Uh, and have one of the fastest growing conservative radio shows and podcasts in the country. So thank you for that. It's because you're telling people about the show. Single best thing you can do. Nothing grows the show faster than when one of you listening to this says, hey, have you checked out this guy, Buck Sexton? Oh, he doesn't. He's not on my local radio station. All right. Well, check out his podcast on, on iTunes or the iHeart app. Uh but even for me, and I, I do this for a living, for me, this is challenging. This is challenging. Um, not to understand. I mean, to sit through. I'm like, you, you've got to be kidding me. We have to have Adam Schiff. I, it's all, I think he almost reads the same thing. Is he reading the same thing every day? I can't even tell. And then the president had a phone call where he asked a foreign counterpart for a favor and this is destroying the Constitution and all that is holy in the world, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Every day, Schiff, with some, you know, fable, some story time with Schiff, because as we all know, he is indeed full of himself. You could say he is full of Schiff. And then we get to the latest testimony. We get, we get Fiona Hill. Oh, wait, wait. Actually, before I even tell you about about Fiona Hill, I do want to say this. It is indeed so frustrating. Um, First of all, it is mind boggling that here we are uh, in year four of the Trump presidency in a time of tremendous economic prosperity and relative peace, which is a nice thing. Most of my adult life, we've been trying to fight crazy jihadists all over the world. We're pretty scaled down on that now. And despite all of that, Democrats are still trying to ram Russia, Ukraine hysteria down the throats of normal Americans like total maniacs. Still. Russia, interference, 2016, Ukraine. Guys, you know, they already they already had their shot on this. They already had their shot and it didn't go the way they wanted it to. And now they're bringing Russia back into the mix. Here's here's nonpartisan. And anytime somebody, I keep telling you, anytime somebody claims they're nonpartisan in these things, they shouldn't have to claim that. Just let us make our own determinations about that. Thank you very much. But you have nonpartisan foreign policy expert with the fancy British accent, which is probably why a lot of people think she's you know smart just p- because of the accent. Because producer Mark and I were talking about that. There you go. I mean, all you need is a British accent. Like, oh, but oh. It's got to be a different one. That It has to be one of the fancy accents. It has to be one that sounds like you went to Eton and Harrow and then Oxford and Cambridge. It can't be like, oh, oh, my name's, my name's Phil. Oh, that's right strong, that is. You know, you can't do that. Then you don't, people don't think that you're a fancy British guy. They think that you work at the dockyards or something and, you know, 
Maybe you're an extra on Peaky Blinders, which is a great show, I would have you know. Here's Fiona Hill with her sort of funky British accent, uh, just giving you a little bit of the latest Russia collusion, delusion nonsense. Play 29, please. Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. This is the public conclusion of our intelligence agencies confirmed in bipartisan congressional reports. It is beyond dispute, even if some of the underlying details must remain classified. What she just did there is a fictional choice, you could say, or a false choice. The the case that is being made right now by opponents of the left wing lunatics in Congress, the case that is being made by people like me is not that Russia didn't and by the interfere in our elections. It was disin, it was a disinformation campaign on social media. That's all it was. Russia has been doing public disinformation to influence U.S. foreign policy, not just for my entire life, not just for those of you listening, but your your parents' generation, for the, those of you who are uh, boomers. You're, you know, the, the stretching back all the way to the early 20th century, the Russians were putting out disinformation. The Soviets were putting out disinformation, obviously, after the Russian Revolution. They've been paying off journalists. They've been recruiting journos as commies, which is not hard because a lot of journos kind of want to be commies or are commies and still are to this day. Uh, They've been engaged in influence operations. And guess what? America is involved in influence operations all over the world, too. What, what do you think the Russians, I'm not saying that they're, that they're right and we shouldn't do these things, but when we run these democracy institutes and you got like Soros with all these foundations all over the world and stuff, we're talking about you know, rule of law and democracy and anti-corruption efforts. Guess what? That's foreign influence. I mean, we, maybe we could say it's above board, fine, but we are trying to influence the outcome of foreign countries. Does anybody think that when Benjamin Netanyahu was up for re-election in Israel under the Obama administration that... Team Obama wasn't making a little bit, a little bit harder, or trying to do a little bit more to make sure that Benjamin Netanyahu would not get reelected. This is the world we live in. There's a lot of lies out. There's a lot of disinformation. I, I prefer a world where we get to be adults and make our own choices and vote the way that we see fit. Part of the problem here is that Democrats still cling to this belief that if only people had better information in 2016. They would not have voted for Donald Trump. See, it was it was because of their their believing in the lies that the Russians were feeding the system. A lot of what the Russians were doing was just trying to magnify. Oh, and another thing is it it, she said this and this is correct to her credit that the, the story the Democrats always tell is that they wanted to undermine undermine our democracy by supporting Trump because he was that's actually not really true. The Russians just were trying to engage in a campaign, predominantly engage in a campaign of messing with our stuff to make it seem like our system was shaky and, uh, you know, it was all kind of essentially as a mockery, make a joke of it. Well, so whoever won, it would be like, well, I mean, this person, that person, who knows, right? It's all based on what people are posting on Facebook anyway. Another problem with this is you have the the vast... Uh, vast exaggeration 
I mean, we're talking here. We are again talking about Russian influence in the election going into the 2020 election. We're still having to talk about this. Democrats are obsessed. The vast exaggeration of how effective this campaign would be. I work in politics or political commentary. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and, and you know, these different platforms. Instagram, by the way, follow me at Buck Sexton. Uh, I'm on these different platforms every day. And I was all throughout the election. I saw zero Russian disinformation. And if I had, I'm seeing hundreds and hundreds of posts all day long. So the one lock her up post that the you know the Russian Internet Research Agency or whatever put on on Facebook. Oh, now now I saw that you know lock her up thing. So now I guess we gotta vote against Hillary. What? This is what they're saying to you. Oh, because uh, WikiLeaks released email. The WikiLeaks release was about Hillary and Bernie. We already knew that the DNC was in the tank. For everybody knew that it was nothing. Uh, this this just didn't change a thing. But, you know, they can pretend that it does. But this is like what I say to you. I mean, imagine if imagine if the media decided and they could do this every election. There is every national election. There's fraud. I mean, just go back and look. I'm not just that's a true statement. They always say there's no such thing as election fraud. And then it's like, oh, here's somebody going to prison for it. So explain that to me. But in every election, there's fraud. There's some malfeasance that takes place. Maybe it's maybe we're talking about, you know, accidental fraud or, you know, whether it's intentional or a systematic campaign or just a one off. We could have the entirety of the American media, therefore, say that every that that any election is illegitimate because there was fraud up. Oh, there was fraud, you know, and, and because we know that a couple of votes were cast that shouldn't have been out of one hundred and thirty million or so or one hundred twenty five million, whatever it is, because, you know, we know that. Then we know that uh, perhaps there's a lot more. So every election then becomes suspect. Well, no, that's stupid. You say, well, look, I mean, there's it's not perfect, but it's getting us as close as it can. I mean, the system is never going to be perfect. Russia did not cause Hillary Clinton to avoid Wisconsin and to think she was going to win states. She had no chance of winning and to be a horrible candidate, by the way, who's corrupt and who's a criminal. They keep calling Trump a criminal. They can't figure out what the crime is that he's committed. Hillary Clinton Clinton violated the Espionage Act and intentionally tried to uh, evade government records requests as a senior government employee. Hillary Clinton's a criminal. I mean, the second part is is more of a regulatory or regulation violation. But I mean, she should never hold a clearance the rest of her life. We're going to have somebody who should never hold a clearance the rest of her life as president of the United States. Really? That's the 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 uh, honorable, ethical, responsible Democrats that are lecturing us even today about Russia. It would have been so much better if we had voted for Hillary Clinton. That's the. This is why I just end up looking at them like you guys are a joke. I mean, this is absurd. You can't really mean this. What happened? We know what happened, Hillary. We know what happened. Uh, the false choice, though, here is that only that back to Fiona Hill and her testimony, which was you know pretty boring, all all things considered. Um, the the choice that she gives us is that either Russia or Ukraine intervened in the election. And so if you believe that there was any Ukrainian attempt to to influence, interfere in the election, you're buying into propaganda. OK, I read to you public statements on the record everybody knows about from Ukrainian officials condemning Trump because they were so worried he was going to be pro-Russian, which, of course, came in part from his statements trolling the media a little bit. But also there was this narrative among Democrats and their media allies that Trump was going to be a Russian puppet. He was going to be Putin's stooge. 
And so Ukrainian government officials were coming out publicly. This is all on the record saying, oh, you know, Trump is really bad on this. A bigger threat than terrorism, the interior minister said. That's isn't that influence? I mean, you know, Trump makes a joke about Russia. If you're listening, can you get us the Hillary emails? And people act like that was treason. They've said it was treason. I mean, they'll, they'll I'm not exaggerating that either. Uh, meanwhile, you have Ukrainian government officials who are saying that the presidential candidate who ended up winning the election was a bigger threat than terrorism. And if you say anything about that, you believe a conspiracy that you're a bad guy. Um, Fiona Hill is not ch- not changing any mindset, but none, none of this is really going to change any any minds. Um, oh, and, and don't ever forget that they're going to any effort to fight against the Kafka-esque trial here is further evidence that you should be condemned by that by that kangaroo court. Here's Adam Schiff letting everybody know yesterday that if you don't do exactly what we say, then your refusal to do what we say in this sham political proceeding that we pretend is kind of legal uh, is further evidence that you are guilty. Play uh, 13, please. Uh, 15, 15, sorry. We can see why Secretary Pompeo and President Trump have made such a concerted and across-the-board effort to obstruct this investigation and this impeachment inquiry. And I will just say this, they do so at their own peril. I remind the president that Article 3 of the impeachment articles drafted against President Nixon was his refusal to obey the subpoenas of Congress. Really wants to start a co-equal branch of government uh, war, doesn't he? You're going to subpoena, you're going to subpoena the president of the United States, going to subpoena his top advisors, say that they have to answer questions that go to executive privilege. The Democrats are are completely bastardizing this process. I mean, they they have made this whole thing so polluted with partisanship that I don't think it'll I don't I don't think the Congress, you know, the FBI, you can't look at it the same way after the Comey McCabe struck page debacle. FBI is in bad shape. Uh, Department of Justice and its impartiality. Remember, Loretta Lynch didn't recuse herself, didn't recuse herself from the Hillary Hillary emails after accidentally meeting with Bill Clinton on a tarmac. Their private jets just happened to have a meeting where where they left their security details behind. Yeah. Oh, I guess we're all just so stupid. We can't we can't figure out that maybe that wasn't an accident. Oh, yeah. We're a bunch of morons. Didn't recuse herself from that. I mean, the DOJ looks like it looks like a joke. And the problem with these jokes the Democrats are playing is they're not funny. It's actually really damaging to the country over the long term. But they don't care. Schiff doesn't care. I keep coming back to this. And I don't, I don't mean to be petty. Does anyone believe or even like Congressman Schiff? He just seems like the most uh, disreputable uh scheming, underhanded character in the entire United States Congress. How do you respond to Ambassador Sondland's evidence today that you directed uh, him to coordinate Ukraine policy with the president's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani? Uh, The second one's easy. I didn't see a single thing that I was working. Sounds like you might not have been. Uh, I I was in meetings all day and haven't had a chance to see any of of that testimony. That really is going to increasingly, I think, become the best single, uh, the best single response to all those Democrats' office. This is this just dismissive 
There's nothing new. I, I keep hearing, oh, but, and this, the Ukraine policy, that, Trump's Ukraine policy better than Obama's. Obama's Ukraine policy, cowardly, weak, wimpy, didn't do enough. Trump comes in, does more. Nothing bad happens, but they say something almost bad happened because he wanted to go after his political rival with dirt, meaning actually look into what the heck was going on with Hunter Biden's son, a uh, Ukrainian company, you know. Oh, nothing to see there. The same thing every day. I mean, you know, we'll dig into it. I'll find ways to, you know, mock these clowns as they come forward. But, uh, you know, now, now yesterday the big thing that, that Sondland was talking about was a, was a meeting, a meeting that didn't even, that, that, uh, a meeting with the president. That's what the whole, it's just ridiculous. I, I, I sit here and I go, we're not even looking at the same stuff anymore. I mean, we, we've sat, we sat through. Because, okay, let's see, may, maybe they'll find something that, you know, none of us know about in the Russia collusion thing. No, they didn't. It was all a, it was all a sham. And now they just want us to sit here quietly again for sham 2.0? No, I don't think so. There will be, there will be no sham part dieu. Well, I guess there will be one, but I don't have to sit through it and pretend that it's serious. And that's what Democrats are insisting on right now. All right. So Ann Coulter asked me when I saw her last time uh, in, in Nashville, said, you know, can you come out? Uh, it'll be great. She asked me and a few other people who were all hanging out uh, to go to her speech in Berkeley. And I forgot about it. I don't think I, I could have gotten out there. It's kind of a long way to go for, for a speech. But it would have been fun to be there because Ann Coulter, Ann Coulter has been triggering libs with the best of them for a long time now. Uh, she, the, the libs, they hate Ed Coulter in a way that she should wear as a badge of honor. I think she, I think she does, but she spoke at UC Berkeley last night and this is a frustration. Actually, I sit here and I, I wish I could play for you because there's a lot of video. The good thing now is that there's, everyone carries around a video camera and can not just a video camera, but the video camera and the immediate means of dissemination for whatever video they take. So Coulter was was giving the speech and and on the uh, in the run up to it, you had protesters there uh, engaged in cancel culture and people showing up wearing masks. This is one of the this is one of the uh, stunning inconsistencies that you see repeatedly from uh, left wing Democrats that they think that they're the ones standing up for freedom and democracy and and fighting fascism, you know, Antifa, the anti-fascists, they call themselves. And they show up dressed like thugs in battle gear covering their faces. Who are the fascists? The people that show up wearing all black covering their faces with weapons threatening people or the people that are invited to share their political thoughts at a place that is supposed to be about the exchange of ideas, i.e. a university campus. Who are the fascists, I ask? Uh, these libs have neither educations worthy of the name nor any sense of irony. But this is what ended up happening. Uh, the event was titled Adios America. She's going to talk about immigration, which I'm sure was, I'm sure was great. I'm actually going to try to watch this speech. 2,000, according to Berkeley College Republicans... 2,000 protesters showed up outside the speech. That is, that is stunning. These kids, I just want to, I, I wish I could stand up in front of them with a bullhorn. And I don't, 
I don't know. Maybe I'm not a maybe I'm not offensive enough because they don't have me comment. But I would trigger all these kids too. I don't know what else to say. They would all be like, "Oh my gosh, look at the stuff that this Sexton kid says. He looks like the guy from Parks and Rec. Get him." Uh, but you know, they say a lot worse stuff than that. Trust me. I would just want to get on a bullhorn and really try to be helpful for all these childish liberal protesters and just tell them, you know, read a book. And a book that's worth reading, and then read a few more. Like, try to learn. Try to get better at thinking. Try to build wisdom and understanding of the world and of history. Stop this performance theater of outrage, and you can't say that, and I'm oppressed, and I'm a victim, and I want to whine, and it's pathetic. It's pathetic. It doesn't do anything. It's just whining. It's just whining masked with histrionics, in some cases, with masks. They formed a human wall and linked arms to block people from even getting to the speech, physically blocking them. Now, there's a very fine line between uh, preventing people from free movement and assaulting people, right? And for anyone who doesn't understand this one, okay, uh, what if someone followed you home and then decided they were going to follow you everywhere for a whole day and walk one foot in front of you and just stare into your face? They're not, they're not assaulting you, but they're going to follow you everywhere. They're going to walk one foot in front of you, walking backwards, staring at your face. Is that intimidation or is that, of course it is. When people do things like this, I mean, this reminds me of the, the, uh, the stunning loser who allegedly went to Yale, according to him, who uh, found me outside of the Young Republican Club event. Well, there's a bunch of them. They're all screaming epithets at me and everything. I'm just walking past them. None of them know what I've said about anything. They just see white, ma- white male Republican going to event where there are other white male Republicans giving speeches, and they want to hurl abuse and insults. And, and you know, I, I don't want to get, uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want to turn this into a, a big, a big, pity party or anything but also you know people have challenges people have difficult days they have um, you know family members who are dealing with terminal disease they've got problems of their own perhaps with you know health issues they're struggling with depression with anxiety I mean to yell the worst epithets to to sling the most vicious and vile insults imaginable at a human being that you don't know that has done nothing to you and that you know nothing about really is a a clear, at least as far as as far as I'm concerned, a, a clear um, indication that somebody is uh, is mentally unwell. I really I really think that. I mean, I think that we're dealing with a mass form. I think liberalism for a lot of people has turned into a mass form of mental illness, and they need help. They need help because they are willing to be cruel, based entirely on their own ignorance and stupidity. The, the impetus, even no matter what they believe, no matter what the people that are trying to protest Ann Coulter's speech think about, about politics, they aren't willing to dial it back a little bit and just be kind to their fellow human beings and exchange ideas. No, they're so stupid and so vicious in their stupidity that they enjoy a, a kind of performance art sadism yelling the nastiest things they can at somebody, calling people losers, 
you know, saying get out of calling people white nationalists and calling people racist and all just the worst stuff, you know. Why not just call them, you know, a murderer and a pedophile too? I mean, just yell the worst things that they can. And I, I point out to you, friends, where does this happen? Where does this happen on the right? Where does a speaker, an author show up anywhere in America and 2,000 uh, conservatives gather together and spit on people, form human change, and act like total maniacs? Doesn't happen. It just it just doesn't happen. So these are not, this isn't a, you know, look at this side, look at the other side, uh, you know, uh, a plague on both houses. No, no, no. This is a liberal problem. This is the left. This is the, the socialist idiots that aren't learning anything in our public school system, aren't learning anything in our university system, all just form these little reinforcing these media echo chambers of social media. And then, of course, you know, they turn on the left wing channels that are pretending it's real journalism when it's just feeding, feeding leftist pablum to people that don't know any better. And and it's so but it's so gratifying for them because, oh, all of your frustrations in life are because you've been victimized by the system. It's not that you've made choices that weren't great. Or maybe even your family made choices that weren't great and you've had to suffer some of the consequences of that. It's not that anybody um, should take greater responsibility for their own lives, for their own actions. It's that there's a system in place, a patriarchy, a white male patriarchy of conservatives that holds everybody else down. We are the answer to every question about why people are frustrated, why people feel like the country isn't working for them or whatever it may be. In reality, everybody is responsible for their own lives and their own happiness. You choose whether to be a decent person every day. You choose whether you're going to treat people around you the way that you would want yourself to be treated. Uh, All of these little protesters should be deeply ashamed of themselves. Uh, they're, They're... incredibly rude, which, and I, I know that sounds, oh, how they're being rude, but I really mean they have no manners, no decency, uh, no, no sense of, of honor or integrity and in how they comport themselves. Thousands of them. I'm not talking about like 10 people, thousands of them in one place. And you guys know that I like Ann Coulter. I mean, I think she's a brilliant writer and she's really fun. And she's also a really sweet, really nice person. A lot nicer than a lot of other people in conservative media, I can tell you that. And for people to say the things they say about her, I mean, they were acting. I, 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 and by the way, why am I not playing the videos? Because of all the curse. It would just be beep, 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 beep. I mean, I can't. It's not worth you because you're just going to hear bleeps. Just, you know, you know, F this and blah, blah, that, you know, F this. and It's just they don't have any ideas. They don't have any thoughts. This is on a college campus, a pretty elite school too, at least by test scores, Berkeley. It's just full of idiots, apparently. It's all the ones who show up here. You know, engage with her ideas. Ask her a tough question. Write a letter to the editor, you know, but form human chains. I mean, you know, the, the nastiest thing was somebody uh, went up to a girl who was trying to go see the Ann Coulter speech and a guy pretended to be working the event and said, excuse me, miss, can I see your ticket? And she handed over her ticket to the event and the guy st- stole it, 
you know, laughing like a laughing like a hyena, ran away with it, and everybody else was laughing and being so mean to this girl. What what if what if she's maybe I mean maybe she's a liberal just wanted to see what Ann Coulter is say. They don't know. A lot of liberals show up at these speeches. Maybe she wanted to see for herself. You're gonna you're gonna deny her. These are the tactics of fascists. This is thuggery in place of intellectual discourse and debate. And this has just become normalized on the left. This is all over the place now. Cancel it, shut it down, lock arms, lie in the street. The crybaby fascists of the left need to be taught a lesson. Actually, a lot of lessons. I just have to wonder, you know, where where is... Where is a sense of, of honor coming out uh, in the education system for these kids? What really matters? Who are you every day? How do you treat people? I mean, I, I, would, be, I would be so deeply embarrassed to even be friends with somebody who would show up at a rally like this in Berkeley and speak this way to people and act this way. I, I mean, I would just say I, this is somebody you can't have in your life. Somebody's got real problems. Really needs help, and not help that I can give them. And that is what we see now at college campuses across the country. And don't think that it's for those of you who are like, oh, whatever. College is crazy. Colleges are the training ground for the left-wing Alenskyite shock troops of the future. These kids are getting they're they're learning things. They're being taught things, not useful things. They're being taught. Uh, brainwashed politically in college, then they go out and they're the they're the ones who show up and say, uh, you know, Buck Sexton said that Ilhan Omar was attractive, so he should get fired. Because that's a thing that happened. Yeah, yeah, came right out of college. That was that was stunning. Um, you know, I I left uh, I left that organization on my own terms and and was you know fine with everybody when I left, but. Uh, let me tell you, the second I get a the second I get a whiff that there's not a, a backbone of decency with with management to stand up for something when clear I mean, it's just so obvious that this cancel culture thing has run amok and it's gone crazy. Um, but we we have to fight back. We really do. And it's in your hands all the time. Who do you support? Who do you listen to? Who do you watch? Where do you spend your dollars? Because we are everything now, every economic decision, every media consumption decision, it's all part of this culture war. And do you want to fight back against cancel culture? It's, uh, it's of course, of benefit to me to say this, but I'm open about that. I mean, every time you watch this show or get somebody else to watch or listen, um, you're voting against these lunatics, these maniacs being like, no, sorry, we, we want other voices. We want other people. We want people who actually know something as well to be part of the conversation in this country and, and not just people that are acting like complete lunatics all the time. I mean, it was, I, I can't imagine how you would be a, a Democrat seeing this 2000 person protest at Berkeley of an Ann Coulter's. Ann Coulter's been giving speeches for like 25 years now. What, what do they think they're, oh, if they stop this speech, then Ann Coulter's gonna go, no. I mean, and Ann loves this stuff, by the way. She loves that they get so crazy because she knows it's because they're idiots. If Democrats should be so embarrassed, but you know, they're not, they see this as enthusiasm and they see that these are useful idiots. They're useful little shock troops of cancel culture. That's what's going on here. I guess I'm going to have to go to one of these colleges at some point soon and, and give a, a speech and see, uh, see how riled up all the, all the kids will get. I, I, mainstream conservatism upsets them. So one thing I find so funny is the, you see the way these different, 
media outlets will talk about a speech and they'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so who's going to speak there is a, you know, extreme right-wing firebrand or something. No, really just standard conservatism will drive these kids completely insane. Standard, run-of-the-mill, you know, being, if if you are, uh, let's just go down a few things. If you are for traditional marriage, if you are pro-life, if you are for small government, if you are for securing the border, uh, if you don't believe that, you know, there should be laws against, quote, hate speech, if you, any of these things, and leftists who disagree with you think that you are not just out of the mainstream or you should be shut down. You should not be able to hold those opinions. Half the country isn't allowed to think what it thinks effectively. That is now the new standard of the left. This is absolutism. The left wing has embraced an absolutism in what's allowed on campus and what's allowed to be a part of our conversations. And it's now migrated into corporate culture. I mean, I mentioned you before, you know, that's that's what I'll never forget. I still can't believe that somebody was demanding from me an apology for saying that a public figure was attractive. That was there was nothing, uh, nothing beyond that. A public figure was attractive. And uh, not only was I it was the demand that I apologize, but that it was also made clear that even if I apologize, the person who filed this complaint thought that I should be fired for that fired. These people are vicious little sadists on the left. I mean, you know, I'm fine and, you know, don't have a wife and kids and I had other jobs and everything would have, you know, I would have, I would have walked that off pretty quickly. But what a stunningly evil totalitarian position. People who think that they're good human beings are willing to take because of offenses against wokeness. All of a sudden, human suffering, all of a sudden, the the sense of, of common struggle that we all just have as people trying to get through our day. None of that matters. You show up, you scream in the face of a young girl who just wants to go to a speech at a college campus. You take her ticket, you mock her, you yell at her. This is mainstream leftism today. All right, everybody, we were talking about free speech before and the need to exchange ideas and to hear things. And so it's with that that I tell you to strap in, and I mean wear your seatbelt. <laughs> Because we are about to have a conversation with my friend Michael Malice, uh, and he has written a new book, The New Right, uh, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. So I suppose we're about to hop in and journey with you to that fringe for a moment to understand them, to understand the fringe of American politics. Sure. Great to have you here, man. Thank you. By the way, you are our first in-person physical guest in the Freedom Huts. You can see now... The Wayne's World basement is like the Four Seasons compared to what we've got going on in here. I, I always knew you had a doomsday prepper aspect to you, and I'm glad to see you've implemented it fully. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad to see that you make the most of the environment around you because your shoes are made from clubbed baby seals, which is... I think uh, they're adult. Oh, you, are you sure about that? Yes. He is wearing seal seal, seal skin shoes. Seal leather, yeah. Seal leather. Can well, I... leather? Are you actually going to show us this now? Yeah. Wow. They're vintage. It's you can't stylish. make it. It's illegal now. Oh, it'd be illegal now. Okay. Because yeah. it's baby seals. So uh, let's get to this, shall we? The the new right. Uh, first, I want, I want you to start with what is it? Because you know I used to come on the show and I, I remember when Trump won, I had some early monologues that I think have held up very well about how get ready for the alt-right and white nationalism to be dramatically inflated sure. as a threat to the country and, and 
the 15 morons who will show up at a KKK rally somewhere are representative of millions and millions of... It's not true, but well, what is... Well, 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 okay. What is the new right, Mr. Malice? Well, I would just point out uh, the 100 senators are supposed to be represented with 350 million Americans, so numbers aren't always a good metric. That's true. Uh, so and I think- also, I mean, as I tell people in the Russian Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks, Bensheviks, never had popular support, never a majority. So. And, and also how many p- people were there in 9-11. So sometimes when you have a small group, they might have a much very yeah, dangerous- Small groups change the future. We and and ha- have very d- uh, dangerous uh, impact. So uh, the new right, as I define the book, let me see if I could get it exactly correct, is a loosely connected group of individuals united by their opposition to progressivism, which they perceive to be a thinly veiled religion based on egalitarian principles and intent on world domination via globalist hegemony. So within this sphere, you are going to have these white nationalists and KKK types, as you say, but you're also going to have all sorts of other heretical thinkers. And the only thing they have in common is who they see the enemy as and what they see the nature of that enemy to be. I got to say the last part about a thinly veiled religion, uh, it's a pretty accurate description of progressivism these days. And that, it's not possible to believe things that people are saying on the democratic stage, for example, about the world ending and sea and, and cities being under underwater. That's a religious belief. I mean, no normal, rational person really thinks that that's happening. Well, it's it's literally a religious belief in that most religions have some kind of apocalypse in yes. the world scenario. In fact, I tweeted this yesterday. There was an article from 1989 from the Associated Press. You can look at my Twitter talking about how if we don't get this under control by 2000, uh, major cities will be underwater. So this has been a claim now for 30 years. And, you know, I was on Rogan discussing this. If these people believed it, the best metric for if someone believes something is look at their actions. You know, if, if you say you like someone... Be careful on the table, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. It's going to sound like you're pounding it. Go ahead. Like Khrushchev, like, yeah. like, like Grandpa Khrushchev. Um, if this were true, then we would see real estate values on the coastlines would collapse because those people are course, putting their money in. Yeah. And instead, beachfront properties rates have gone you know, through the roof, as, as, as you would expect. So they obviously – and here's the other example I always use because I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist. If there were, for example, a meteor about to hit the earth and in 20 years – all life might end. The only thing anyone in the Senate or, ho- or House or the president we talk about is the meteor. What do we do about the meteor? The meteor, the meteor, the meteor, right? There's no other conversation. There's complete bipartisanship. The fact that we're discussing so-called kids in cages means that there is not a sincere belief that this is an imminent existential threat well, to your life. This is the point I made about the most recent Democratic debate. You've got all of... And it's... It, you have to be a Democrat now in good standing. There are a few things that you must say or else you are out. You are, you are voted off the island. Uh, abortion is clearly one of them, but also climate change is not one of them. If you if you don't say, I believe in climate change, which is a very strange thing to say about what's supposed to be a scientific and really scientific slash policy. Discuss, why does it why is it believe then why not? Why? Why would you even use that term? I think it's seeped into people's minds that this is more than just uh, science and discussion. But if they really thought these things, as you point out, then when Barack Obama was president and had not just a majority in the House and Senate, but a filibuster proof sure. majority in the Senate. They did nothing. They passed no legislation. Well, Solyndra. Well, I mean, but that's, <laughs> right, that's, yeah, not, yeah, I mean, exactly. that's not an, an act of Congress right. to deal with climate change, right? right. I mean, so, it's just, it's so we're supposed to believe them now. And this is serious. And yet, if you tell liberals this, they don't react with 
oh, poor you, you don't understand. They don't dismiss you. They don't. They certainly don't say, well, you're entitled to your opinion. They react with rage. Right. They are rageful about their psychosis. Well, well, I don't think it's psychosis. I think it's something that they've been trained to, to accept and believe. And here's another counterexample. You don't think that people, do, do they believe the world's going to end or not? I mean, do, do the adults that think that Greta Thunberg running around, a 16-year-old lecturing us on trillions of dollars changing hands in the economy, really trillions of dollars of wealth destroyed, is it all just a scam? Do they uh, do they know it's a scam? Like I think CNN's audience, and I actually just talked about this earlier on the show. CNN's audience knows that the anchors are all liberals. They know that getting Trump is the game. They no. know this. No, they don't. I I used to work there. I'm telling you, most the of the audience. The audience knows. No, the audience. They're in on it. As long as they're trying to tear Trump down, they're fine with it. I think the audience, I don't think liberals, as you call them, perceive themselves as liberals. I think they perceive themselves as sane and normal. And much of the corporate media is there to present the idea that all right-thinking people think these very basic ideas. And if you don't think these very basic ideas, even Republicans like Anna Navarro and Bill Kristol, then there is something fundamentally wrong with your thinking. And it's based on either insanity or hatred. See, I think that, that, I, I think that that's a perfect description of the media pre-Trump. I do think that Trump I think that Trump has changed it in that now there's an understanding. I mean, you you cannot be an, an intelligent human being with any sense of context or, or reason and think that CNN is not anti-Trump. It's not it's not possible to think. That. No, I, I, this is why it's possible. You, I think you forget how complicated the human mind is, how good it is at compartmentalization. So they would say it's anti-Trump because it's pro Because it's true. Right? And therefore, <laughs> if do. you're yeah, true, I mean, it's going to necessarily lead you to be pro-Trump. Well, this is why they did the whole banana apple thing. Remember Correct, that whole ad? Of it's course. Like we're just... Being anti-Trump is to be facts. Well, but this right. has always been. That's actually even going back to Bernie Goldberg's book Bias in the '90s. It was that they didn't think they were liberal; they just thought they were correct. Correct. Yeah, and, and I guess they they still do that. But I I just can't imagine there's not a large look. We're talking about. It's funny with CNN; the audience is a million at the absolute top. Is it really that low? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't realize in it was that tiny. Time? Wow. Yeah, wow, it's amazing. about a million. Okay. Yeah, Anderson Cooper has eight hundred thousand people okay. watching that show every night. I mean, the show is, is small compared to. Uh, uh, compared to what you're, you know, used to doing at Fox and there. Anyway, I, I want to get back to your book, but see, Michael and I, we actually occasionally like just t- hang out and talk about. But things, I just want to, yeah, b- one point you just made, which is you're acting. I think a lot of conservatives tend to think that this is somehow a recent phenomenon. And one of the things I talk about in my book is this has been going on for 100 years since the days of Woodrow Wilson, and we're all discussed in school about uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst, yellow journalism, right? How the media would foment Spanish-American War, and at some point, like they they started being decent, rational, kind people. It's like no, 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 this hasn't changed. Cons- Conservatives have this uh, belief, uh, uh, this kind of impulse. Which that they is, used to be nor- like the left used to hold be on, no, In general, conservatism is the idea like things were better then and now things have fallen away. And that's not inherently wrong or right, but that's just a kind of conservative psychology. And part of this belief is, okay, if things are really bad now, then they must have been bad, better before. And we t- tend to think things were better before because before we were kids. And when we were kids, we'd be oblivious to a lot of the media's malfeasance and depravity because we just take it at face value. And one of the things I discuss is this has been going on for decades. And, uh, you so know, kind of, now, if, if I, if I go may, ahead, please. I mean, and technically it is my show, so I'll do whatever I want. But mm-hmm. <laughs> if I may, the, the, <laughs> you, the issue of the issue of transgenderism, sure. uh, that I mean, I, I think you can put these things. You could plot it almost on an X, Y axis and look at this. I mean, transgenderism 10 years ago. Is was the demands of the transgender movement were dramatically different than they are now. Sure. So the perception that things are worsening, if you look at it policy, but I mean, open borders is dramatically more uh, common to hear from mainstream Democrats now than it was then. Now, maybe if you want to argue that there's some 
cyclical nature to some of this. No. That's that's what that's a different thing. But on these issues, we are closer to the maximal position now for the left than we've been before. I, I don't that's, see how that's, that's, that's. I'll tell you how you're wrong uh, because if you look on at transgender rights, I mean, that's not how is that even possible? Maybe if I can finish ah, your, yes, answer your question, then I'll be glad to answer it. Um, I think you are looking at examples as opposed to the broader principle. Think about it like a toolbox, right? If transgender people wouldn't exist, is it your claim that the evangelical left wouldn't be fomenting, uh, you know, agitation about some other issue, whatever it is? They just find they latch onto something every few years that becomes the cause du jour. And overnight, here's the thing. Let's talk about transgenderism, right? Overnight, the one thing, if you were caring about transgender people, was specifically transgender bathrooms. Now, when it comes to a transgender person's life, this or any of our lives, which bathroom you use is not at all the most important thing. Yet overnight, the message came out across the entire corporate press that this is the one issue and this is the one aspect of this one issue. That is not by accident. And in talking about maximal uh, um, leftism, if you look at the 1940s, when the steel uh, industry was about to go on strike, Harry Truman just blithely said, well, I'm just going to have the government seize the entire industry. So when you had Woodrow Wilson locking people up for having their political views, uh, uh, he locked up the the third party, uh, you know what yelling, I mean? Cr- yelling fire in a crowded theater. People always say this without understanding the context that it was people opposed to the war. Right. When you had, uh, before the fairness doctrine, you couldn't have any kind of real free speech in terms of radio or television. So it used to be a lot, lot worse. Now, in terms of what they're freaking out about, maybe the positions are more extreme, but in terms of their control and domination, in many I ways, okay. they were much so, more hardcore. So the overarching theory has, has, main, has been stable. It's just a question of timing for because for example i mean not to just focus transgenderism is one immigration is definitely another i mean sure. there were even in recent memory i mean the obama administration was deporting hundreds of thousands of people and now you've got julian castro on a stage and getting claps from people he's not who, on a stage anymore and here's a fun thing i have more twitter followers than his uh campaign manager so i really enjoy tweeting at him asking if julian <laughs> castro is having a whiskey with Kristen Gillibrand I mean, right now yeah, anyway but now now he's saying that we should have taxpayer funded uh uh abortion for transgender legal aliens. So, I mean, there is, that, that, that's, I guess you could say within the confines of a specific issue, that is just the manifestation of what you're talking about, which has existed consistently for, as you say, over 100 years. Think, think, like, leftism hasn't changed. It's just how leftism gets applied in specific situations at different times. But I do think that right now on some very important issues, we are at a on the issue, a maximal leftist. There's no, there's no further place really. To, I mean, op- beyond it, open borders, where do you even? But go? it's always been that way. It's always been totalitarian. I mean, the whole fantasy of the progressives in the early 1910s was to have a government, a country entirely managed by the so-called experts in Washington. And now we have these college-educated elites, and they're going to take over and have the entire country run like an army or barracks. And this was their fantasy, and they talked about this openly and brazenly. And this is why many of them looked at the Soviet Union and Mussolini with great admiration. I, I talk about this in the in the book as well, because when you have the free market and these small-minded people making their own decisions, things get messy and complicated. We want to have everyone the same, everyone in lockstep, and everyone regimented. And and this is, again, that's why these issues happen overnight. And you have CNN and the New York Times, which is failing badly, promulgating them. And then everyone takes their marching orders, as they've been trained to do from public education, and goes on social media and shrieks the same things verbatim. 
the new right. What are the components of it? I want to get back to your book because sure. you're here to talk about your book. What are the components of the new right? What do you mean? What are the components? What are like the subsets? The new right. Oh, is okay. What? There's a, there's a lot of different subsets. There are the kind of techno anarchists who think technology is what's going to overthrow the state and liberate us. There are the white nationalists, and I, the alt right is the subset of the new right, which thinks race is the most important or one of the most important issues. Um, then you have you know the real some really kind of fringe ideas like monarchism. We have to bring back the Stuart dynasty. Uh, you have these kind of quasi-fascist types. Um, you have, of course, just the broadly speaking libertarians. You have the collapsitarians. Let's just bring it all down and vote further left uh, and just rebuild from there. Then you have, you know, the helicopter people. So it, there's, there's lots of different groups. And, uh, you know, Ann Coulter gave a speech recently. We were talking about it on the show. It's just reprising. Adios America, which I think is really interesting uh, that this doesn't get this doesn't get talked about more. Trump's argument that was the thing that he came out and said publicly that all of a sudden everyone goes, wow, this guy's the front runner. Yeah. Was just the Adios America argument effective. Correct. I mean, Trump didn't come up with the idea I, to, to, to build a wall. I mean, this was just he read the book or read or someone told him about what's in the book. I don't know if you read it or not. Correct. Yeah. And the point was that then all of a sudden he's the front runner. So Anne, in a way, kind of birthed Trumpism, or or at least you know was was there at the at the origins of it. It's it's really and funny because the previous president was picked by Oprah Winfrey, and the current president was picked by Ann Coulter. So this is a very odd country. Well, given the power that media has and yeah. the omnipresence of it in our lives, I talk about this all the time. I and mean, we're we are carrying around surveillance and propaganda machines with us twenty. 20- yes. Four seven. This is completely new. Speaking of things that have changed, this is new in human history in a way that even a hundred years ago, obviously, was not even was not even really uh, something people could think about. I mean, when when you look at Orwell's nineteen eighty four, people love to talk about George Orwell. They 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 don't really understand that. Not even Orwell knew that there would be a device where you were freely and of your own will, essentially sharing all of your thoughts, all of your wants, all of your locational information, which you know ex girlfriends or boyfriends you're looking at with private corporate entities that can then also share it with the government at will as they choose to. What I would encourage conservatives to do is also to read Brave New World, which I think in many ways is closer than 1984 because that, instead of, uh, 1984 is the the kind of the fist uh, and Brave New World is kind of the carrot at the end of the stick and that the masses and populations are controlled far more through pleasure and, you know, uh, being promised these kind of little bursts of endorphin, uh, endorphins as opposed to kind of the fear of reprisal. And you see that, I think, uh, over and over in the media and in social media. So the, the uh, culture immigration component, that's something you talk about in your book. Oh, yeah, right? I have a chapter on, on the Divine Miss C, yeah. Yeah, and, and what, what do you want people to know about this? Well, her big point, and Michelle Malkin just got a huge amount of heat for speak, speaking part of this and as well as some other stuff, is these immigrant groups... Uh, are disproportionately, enormously disproportionately voting Democrat. So it's just a numbers game. If I bring in 3 million people who are going to vote Democrat from any country in the world, or 30 million people who are going to vote Democrat, that is going to have enormous impact on uh, election outcomes. So her point is, why are we importing Democratic voters as Republicans? I'm not a Republican, but she is. And to bring this up, oh my you're God. An, you're an anarchist. I am an anarchist, yeah. yes, sir. Uh when people say, oh, my God, you know, every every everyone who comes here is citizen just like everybody else. And it's like, OK, yeah, it's you're saying that because they're going to vote how you want them to vote. And and although ostensibly many people on the left will say, OK, you can't bring in everyone. They are very kind of cherry about where they're going to draw that line. And her point is, why as Republicans are we bringing in people who are anathema to our worldview and our culture uh, just because The New York Times is going to marginally hate us less? She goes, if the New York Times isn't attacking you, you're doing something wrong. Well, there also are Democrat strategists, and you go back and they, they, so they always pretend like this isn't the case, but they're 
quite aware of what the demographic change in America does for the prospects of the Democratic Party, which, I mean, let me ask you this. Is the Democratic Party a socialist party? Oh, yes, of course. And so is the Republican Party. Oh, look at this. This is why we get Michael Malice in here to say the things that nobody else is going to say. Why is the Republican Party a socialist party? Let's start because on that all government is socialism. You guys believe in socialized national security. You believe in socialized education very heavily. You believe in socialized security. You believe in socialized uh, conflict resolution. These are all socialist. So all government is socialist. Yes, and you're just quibbling with them about how much. So how socialist we are. Well, this is what's interesting about the debate with Sweden and Venezuela. You know, this is how it always goes on socialism is look at Sweden, look at Venezuela, uh, which one of those is socialism? The answer is, is is both and neither in a sense, because neither of them are places where the government seizes the means of production, runs everything. But both of them are places where there's a lot of government intervention in markets. But isn't uh, Sweden much more market oriented in its it economy? Is, it so is the government's actually, not running that, that, things. Correct. Yeah, 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 no, but that's what I'm saying. They, have is a welfare state. they really just have a very large welfare state and high yeah. taxation. But there are sectors of socialism that exist in Sweden. And there are really the biggest problem that Venezuela had, among many others, uh, was that they instituted price controls. Yes. And price controls was also a really, really bad idea for the uh, French Revolution, but we'll get to that in a second. All right, so you're with Michael Malice, author, and uh, can we call you a muckraker? Would that be would No, that be that's accurate? a journalist. I'm yeah, not a muckraker at all. That's like, like, you're not, that's like you're not a journalist, I thought? Yeah, that's of like course. Upton I know, Sinclair. it's Upton Sinclair in the jungle, who's a socialist, by the way. Of course he is. And he <laughs> actually, never actually, ran, actually ran as a socialist. Uh, and co- poverty in California in 1934 yeah, yeah, and lost. Yeah, yeah, It's almost like these ideas keep coming back, even though they were bad ideas at the time. Um, where Are you a, Are you kind of a, a Randy, a, a, Ayn Randian Yeah, person? sure, you yeah, can call me okay. Randian, yeah. Yeah, that's a little bit, because when people think anarchists, so I've been around some anarchists that do these crazy black block, uh, black block protests. Sure. Uh, and they uh, they're actually just really angry leftists they're, they're there's not I mean, when I've when I've talked to them, interviewed okay. them they don't seem to share any you know, their whole thing is like the problem is Bernie Sanders isn't president right, <laughs> but right. they call themselves anarchists I assume you have a slightly different take than that I do but I do have a, a bit of affection for their <laughs> oh for, for, for Emma Goldman who was the big predecessor who was deported by Woodrow Wilson uh, and Jagger Hoover in d- during World War well, one people forget anarchists were the big threat actually from a terrorist perspective they killed well. Kinley. I I know. Yeah. I mean, they also tried to blow up Wall Street, yes. and they all. I mean, the the, the assassins, the terrorists, for a good like what would we say, thirty ish year, thirty forty year period, at least from the from the perspective of big historical events, they were anarchists. The first terrorists in America were the uh, uh, you know uh, Germans. Uh, Louis Ling was one of these Haymarket ma- martyrs. Right, There's a bomb. The bomb in, yeah. No, no, he, he wasn't. So there was a bomb at Haymarket Square in Chicago. People died. Some police died. They arrested a bunch of people, including Louis. And when he was he his defense was I couldn't have thrown that bomb I was at home building bombs so they and he was hung and now there's a monument because they later they were all um, uh, pardoned because by the governor uh, so uh, let's let's a little a little bit more on on the book um, sure. Oh, well, I mean, wait, you, you said that, that ever. So if everyone's because I, I asked you, are the Democrats socialists? Said, yes. Then you said Republicans are socialists. But if everyone's a socialist, then isn't isn't nobody a socialist? I mean, how does that how no, is the anarchists aren't socialists because so we then, don't so believe in legitimacy of government. So how would that how would societies function if there was no government because all governments are socialist? Well, we, they would function very well uh, because you wouldn't have uh, coercion. You would have peaceful uh, self-segregation. You would have uh, no far less violence. You would have no taxation um, and you would have less forced uh, um 
conflict. Uh, so much of the problems we have in, our, and there wouldn't be no problems, of course, but so much of the problems we have in a society is a result of government schooling, is a result of ridiculous laws, is a result of this... Uh, Public be- school is prison, I think I saw you tweet that. Recently. My tweet, <laughs> this is my quote, Public schools are, uh, you can laugh, but I... I no, I, I'm just, I'm just, I just in- like that. Look, I, I think... Let me, get, let me I, get the quote out. Go ahead, go ahead. Public schools are literal prisons for children and the only place many people will encounter violence in their lives. And I am not You're joking not or being ironic I'm at not, all. No, no, I, well, I mean, but it's it's just, it, my my reaction just comes from watching then in your timeline, the responses to this. I mean, people obviously completely freak out at statements like the one that you made at public schools. Now, prison is obviously worse than what students are subjected to. I public. don't agree. I, well, I mean, that's, the, you haven't spent much time in a prison, my man. Oh, that, uh, sure, but my point is, I have. <laughs> that's me, fair, yeah, right, yeah. but there's different types of prisons. Number one. And number two is the goal of public school is explicitly stated to make good citizens out of the children, which is barely coded uh, language for breaking the souls of every single kid. So these are real. You cannot have enough contempt for these institutions. Yeah, well, I usually focus the contempt on the people that pretend it's all about the kids who work for the public sector unions, which are so appalling that going back to our historical discussion, yes. even the early socialists in America were like, I mean, public sector unions would be a crazy thing. And now if you attack them, they try to use John Doe laws in Wisconsin to ruin your life and your donors and everything else. But that's another another part of the conversation. Um, so, OK, so you basically you don't accept that. The, the, what is the difference then between Republicans and Democrats? And I, I know you're going to trigger some people with this, but I like it. What sure. I, I, this is discussed in my book. The anarchist perspective. I mean, you'd have different perspective and many others in the new right would have different perspective. Many in the new right are Republicans. Uh, the anarchist perspective is that these are two, literally I'm not misusing this word two rival gangs. And the same way that a gangster has a suit on and he's got a nice ring and he, people treat him with respect, that's no, there's no difference, literally, <laughs> between that and the Democrats and Republicans. Like a nice ring thing. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, you, <laughs> there's so, so much rarefied you know, air around what's going on in Congress yeah. and you think about these people are thugs. Um, so there's, I mean, if there's no difference, what are they fighting over all the time? Just who's in power? Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Why do reg- regular gangs fight? Turf? Because uh, what, is, what is your favorite line about... Uh, Progressivism. Oh, what? Cons- oh, I'm sorry. Conservatism. Conserv- everyone's been everyone's been, people have been stealing, stealing my line I know. I and messing it up. I want you to be so able to So if you're going to quote it, quote it right. And it is conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. And what I mean by this, and I don't think you're going to disagree particularly, is that so many ideas in conservatism are, were simply the mainstream progressive idea 20 years ago. And now that there's something to be said for that in the sense of like, there's not even this sense of self-awareness or shame that like, I used to think this. Oh, and now I realize this. It's, it's pretended as if this has always been conservative all along. And it's a very bizarre thing to see so many great progressive achievements being championed by conservatives a generation give later. Me, I mean, give me people are going to want to know. Like Civil Rights example. Act, gay marriage, um, p- public education, uh, Social Security, uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, Bush had Medicaid part, Medicare Part D or Medicaid Part D. I forget See, which one. Now, everything that you've—I I can't think of one of the ones you've said that I would—I could say to you, you're you're wrong. Conservatives don't now say this is good, and that hasn't been. Um, and and I just think that, for example, looking at Social Security, that's just a function of uh, of the politics of power. If you say Social Security is a crappy program that's running out of money, that takes more money out, or rather, that takes more money from people than they would make in even a very basic private sector uh, private sector account you are never in power long enough to actually affect any change sure but so there's becomes... people who are not politicians who could say these things and they don't 
No, you, that's true. And I well, I, but I think it's in part because the people that are supposed to. Everyone pretends to speak truth to power, and it's nowhere is that more a lie, I think, than in the media, where everyone's actually trying to speak the truths they have to to be in power Correct. all the time. I, I agree with particularly. you. Particularly, yeah. No, yes. look, I, I, I want, and this is one of the reasons why I like talking about these things in general, I want much more um, cynicism in politics, and particularly cynicism about people in the media, which I think now, I mean, I, I do think that these edifices of mainstream journalism deserve to be, they deserve to be torn down in in the absence of a real honesty that will never because I mean your your theory for example and we slightly disagree on this but not really much on CNN and how the audience believes this is just true um, I think their business model is at some level premised on a lot of like ABC News another one ABC News is just left wing of CNN there's really no difference they try to package it I, I think it's more. much more depraved than merely left wing when we saw what happened with the Epstein stuff this is not a right wing left wing issue this is. Uh, uh, kowtowing to power in a very, very depraved way. Do you, do you, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, go ahead, actually. No, that was, that was my point. Oh, okay. and, and I think that was a big red pill moment, what happened with Jeffrey Epstein and the cover-up, because it, people should be very... When I talk about... If it was just a bias... Okay, people are left of center. That's you know what you could talk to people who are left of center when you are engaged in systematically covering up things like wars, things like uh, child predation. This is as demonic as it gets. There are some leftists that really have made a name for themselves, even though they don't agree. You know, they a lot of them are, are very anti-Trump, um, and they just they despise a lot of things about conservatism. Usually, the more uh, you know traditional Christian moral components of social conservatism. But there are definitely leftists out there. I mean, Glenn Greenwald is one who I Michael think Tracy, things. Michael Tracy. There are these guys who just say they're red pills. Hey. You know, do, do we believe in these left wing things that we've been saying for a long time? I mean, I don't like the term liberal at all, by the way. I think that because really the, the, the contemporary so-called liberals are the biggest opponents of individual liberty in a political system that, that I know of that exists, at least in this country. And I think that that's getting harder and harder for anybody to, to uh, argue against. But yeah, Michael Tracy and others, I mean, the Russia thing, these people are meaning, meaning the left and, and the media that, that you know, has allied with them. They still run with this story and have no sense of what the ramifications are of really agitating for constant conflict with a country that really doesn't have to be in conflict with us in a meaningful way, does have a lot of nukes, and would be better off if we could actually find ways to cooperate with them where possible. During the campaign, we were all told constantly and explicitly that Trump is so thin-skinned that when someone sends a mean tweet at him from another country, he's going to start World War III, and we don't want his finger on the button. This was the first question asked of Carly Fiorina in the second debate. Mm -hmm. And now we're told constantly and explicitly that Trump is a failure for not getting us into World War III. And there is no shame in this switch. And I'm going to make one more point about these leftists being individual. In 1917, Randolph Bourne, who was an early progressive, was the only voice of, against us getting into World War One. And all the progressives lined up uh, in favor of it. They completely destroyed his career. John Dewey would refuse, the big king of progressivism, refused to work on a magazine with him. And it was the idea that we're all going to get together and have a war to end war. And that he thought this is crazy. And of course, he was correct. The idea we're going to have a war to end war. So it's been a hundred years when they've had this assault on uh, any kind of individualism. This is not new. And I would encourage conservatives to kind of, you know, realize this. The 1930s were regarded as the red decade because Americans intellectuals were in love with what, you know, Stalin was pulling over in the USSR. Stalin. So, you know, when, when people think, oh, it used to be good in the past and now it's gotten worse. It's like it was really 
Uh, Henry Wallace, FDR's vice president, went to visit a concentration camp in the Soviet Union and they put on a play for him and he came back talking about how great it was. I mean, we forget just how left wing and totalitarian things used to be. All right. We're here with author Michael Malice. His book is The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. He's here in the Freedom Hut with me in New York City is our first. You're the inaugural. By the way, it's going to be very fancy. We're going to get some plants. We're going to get some things, you know. To plants. Spruce, There's no light in here. Spruce. Well, you know, it'll be succul- some fungus. It'll be succulents. They we'll, need the light. They're in the desert. Oh, that's it. Well, we'll get the artificial lights. I don't know. <laughs> Producer Mark will make it happen. Um, the war machine. Let's talk about this because, you know, I, I was in the CIA and went to two war zones. And I can say that that pretty dramatically affected my perspective on foreign policy in ways yeah. that I think it should for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, today, you still have there's a traditional element on the right that when we say, hey, let's not have troops in Syria, um, which for a, a th- I could sit here and talk about dozens of reasons why we shouldn't, and they still have this, no, we fight the bad guys wherever they are, whatever the cost, whatever it means. Uh, and Democrats seem in on this too now, insofar as if Trump doesn't want to do it, they want to do it. How is, explain your, your feelings on the war machine. Uh, the establishment's bloodlust for war, in which I include the corporate press, cannot be overstated. This has been going on, again, a very long time. The war drums from the media. We have to go to Iraq. We have to go to Vietnam. We have to go to Korea. Every single war, we have to, we have to, we have to, we have to. Everything in the world, this is the Wilsonian model. If there's anything happening anywhere on earth, it is America's job to go in and impose Pax Americana. And the costs are never discussed. Not only, And here's the other thing. Not only the costs for America in terms of American lives, American dollars, the costs when you go to a country and level it. I mean, if you've been to war zones, I have not, thankfully. I can't even begin to wrap my head around the existential trauma it inflicts on a population to be in a war. And, and thank God I'm privileged enough to not have to deal with this. So it is disturbing to the... Uh, I mean, this is one of the reasons I like Tulsi Gabbard. Anyone who says... And the you, left hates her, by the way. Just I mean, I actually kind of like her too, but they hate her, I think, for this in part. Completely for this. CNN uh, last night had a tweet that said, um, analysis of the debate, and they said, no one goes after Buttigieg. And we all saw with our own eyes Tulsi go after him, and they're brazenly lying that what we saw didn't happen. It took 20 minutes for Tulsi, Tom Steyer, or Andrew Yang to speak at all in a two-hour debate, the three outsider candidates. It is shameless, and it is brazen. And for a long time, this was the big issue for Obama. And we remember the George W. Bush years. Like, the anti-war left was a huge, huge thing. And as soon as Obama comes to office, it vanishes. And that is very, very disturbing. Historically, there's been a very strong anti-war element both on the left and on the right you know the right historically has been Bob Dole was laughed out of town for saying that all the wars of the 20th century were Democrat wars but if you do the math there's some truth to what he was saying and thankfully I'm glad that the Republican Party which has historically been like the, the you know the dad party right the, the party machismo there's a space now to be like wait a minute we don't want these coffins coming home we don't want these brave men killed in their prime we don't want these kids you you know, being raised without dads. Let's take a deep breath instead of having war being a first priority, having it actually be a last resort. I, I, I agree with this, and I've been trying to voice that in my own. You know, I had a debate at CPAC, for example, with uh, Mark Thiessen from, and people can see it, it's on YouTube, so sure. they can make their own. And I was just saying, I mean, look, I mean, I also served in these places for, you know, months, months and months at a time. 
uh, and and Tyson, I, I thought at one point I would push him to a place where he would clearly have to establish there was. I said, look, there's uh, we have we have Boko Haram in Nigeria. You have Al Shabaab in Somalia. You have the Moro Islamic Liberation Front of the Philippines. So why don't we just send a you know a, a, a three or four thousand mili- person military contingent to do counterinsurgency operations in every country, yeah. dozens of them around the world? And he's like, yes. He was a yes. And I sit here, I look at him, I'm like, it's like we've learned. And that, by the way, the height of the Republican establishment, you know, writes for the Washington Post as a Republican. I mean, he's a nice guy, but I was like, you're out of your mind, dude. Can I I give you a a piece of advice? Next time you're in that position, ask him, have you ever considered the possibility that you're one of the bad guys? Historically speaking, Lex Luthor and all these villains, their goal was to conquer the world. And he's sitting there with a straight face, assured that we are always right. And it it could be a bad guy versus another bad guy. That's what these people never think for themselves. They think, okay, this is objectively a bad guy. Therefore, whoever the opposite is by definition a good guy. We saw this in 1979, the Shah in Iran. The Shah's terrible. He's a dictator. He's got to go. And if he's evil, by definition, whoever's after him is going to be good, right? It's the opposite. Oh, wait, this one's evil in a much, much worse way. So, I mean, that is what they never think about, this kind of domino effect, not in the domino theory of the communism, but you topple one guy, the next one is not going to be some kind of Prince Charming. It might be someone who's far, far worse, just like with the czar. You, you, well, let's get rid of the czar. It's going to be great. You know, the, czar's, the czar was objectively yeah, evil he, and, and he, oppressive. He, oh, here comes Lenin. Oh, wait. Can we go back to the czar thing again? Yeah. It, it's, 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 they never play the tape forward. What's the single best work that you would recommend somebody read right now other than the new right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics, which everybody should get available in fine books or ever? But if somebody really wants to understand totalitarianism, what would you tell them to read? Oh, the Black Book of Communism. So a lot of people on the right think everyone on the left is a monolith, right? Uh, I wrote an article for The Federalist, about 10 books every conservative should read. This was on it. This is written by socialists. And they go country after country and describe what the communists did and how they the, the levels of torture and abuse. I mean, just one mild thing, you know, the Soviet Union where I was born, kids were taught at school about Pavlik Morozov, who was a child who turned the, his parents into the cops because they were like selling sweaters. And this is taught in schools that you should turn your parents into the police. I mean, the levels of depravity in these societies where governments turn every citizen into a spy and everyone else, where you could trust no one, where you live in terror when the phone rings or there's a knock at the door, are they coming for me? Americans are thankfully very naive about the nature of evil. And it is my sincere hope as someone who's proud to be an American that in a sense that naivete can continue, that these uh, you know, teeth of totalitarianism never reach these shores. Michael Malice, everybody. The New Right, A Journey to the Fringe of American Politics. Mike, thanks so much for coming in, man. Good to see you. That's going to be it for the show. Shields high.